Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for tonight, for this time that we have together to dive back into your word. I ask for your blessing upon our time. I pray that you would help me to have clarity of thought, clarity of speech. I pray that we would have hearts that are open and willing to receive from you today. Lord, I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last week we completed the stipulations of the law. The big chunk of Deuteronomy with the individual stipulations for Israel. This week, we are moving forward, and Moses is beginning to transition towards the end. We're actually coming close to the end of the book. Um, This week, in chapter 26, we are looking at the Feast of Weeks and also the triennial triennial tie that they're going to do the first time that they do this in the when they enter the land. Um, And then we also look at the um, covenant renewal ceremony that Moses is is going to give them instructions to do in chapter 27. And then in chapter 28, Moses um, teaches the people about blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. So let's get started with Deuteronomy 26 verse 1. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. So remember back a few weeks ago when we had the three pilgrimage feasts that the the Israelites were to go on when they entered into the land, the Feast of of Weeks, the, the... Feast of Booze, there was the Passover, and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Well, this one in particular, um, Moses is highlighting um, the, their first fruits, the offerings of their first fruits of the, the produce that they receive once they get into the land, once they settle into the land. And so he, he is instructing them on how they were to go about doing that. Um, look down with me at verse 3. He goes on and says, And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. So we had been given instructions that they were to do this, um, make this offering, but we didn't know what that was going to look like. So in this text, when he's teaching them about how they're going to do this when they get into the land, he gives us insight about, about what it would look like for them to make this offering to the Lord. And so first, the, um, the man who had his first fruits, he, was, he would go into the priest who was in office at that time. Um, and these are the words that he would say. I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. So he's giving a personal testimony of God's faithfulness to him. He personally is a recipient of the gift of the land that God had promised long time ago. So there's this personal experience, a declaration of his personal experience. And so he gives the offering to the priest and the priest lays it down before the altar. But I believe that the priest actually gives it back because later the man is actually gonna lay it down at the altar again. So apparently the priest also says some words to the man because in verse five, we are told that he shall make a response before the Lord your God. And this is what his response is to be. A wandering Aramean was my father. That's referring to Jacob, the forefather Jacob. 
otherwise known as Israel. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a great nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so now he's giving, before he'd given personal testimony or personal examples of how he had um, received blessing from God, and now he's speaking of the faithfulness of God, rehearsing once again about the faithfulness of God as God had rescued them, redeemed them, and brought them out of Egypt and brought them into, this, into the land. Verse 10, and, and behold, now I bring you the first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me, and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice Rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. Notice how that the celebration and worship of the Lord is rejoicing. It always is rejoicing. Rejoice before the Lord. Our God is a good God. And when the people bring in their worship and bring in their sacrifices and bring in the first fruit, there is rejoicing, there is celebration, there is feasting before the Lord. So let's continue on. He moves away from describing this, um, this time when they're entering into the land and they're going to go to the place where the Lord is placing his name. They're going to Jerusalem. They're going to the tabernacle or the temple where the Lord's presence is. Um, he moves then to verse 12 and to talk about the triennial tithe. Now, a few weeks ago, again, we learned about the three tithes, and Moses is highlighting one specific one. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. Um, remember how we had learned that they would save up one-tenth over the course of three years, and at the end of that three years, they would then give that to the Levites, the sojourner, and the underprivileged, the fatherless, and the widow in their towns. Verse 13, Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was in mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. So he brings his tithe and he declares that this tithe is holy it's pure it hasn't been tainted in any way by these three things that are listed in here um, that he has not eaten when he was in mourning or he has not removed any of it while he was unclean or if he has not uh, offered any of it to the dead which is 
a Canaanite practice of that time. So once again, we have this reminder of never mixing the worship of God with the Canaanite pagan worship of the land, not syncretizing the worship. And so he makes this declaration, here is my tithe, Lord. It is pure. It is holy. I have obeyed you fully in bringing it before you. And then he asks for God's continued blessing. And we have this prayer of blessing in verse 15. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel. Continue, actually. It's a continuation of the blessing because obviously if they're tithing and bringing things to the Lord, it's because the Lord has already blessed them and this is the overflow and they're responding back to the blessing of God. So continued blessing he's asking for. Your people Israel and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. And this prayer is, is kind of interesting to me because the tithe, they did not have to travel to Jerusalem to give this tithe. This is done in their villages and in their towns and in their communities. And he speaks, of, speaks to God, he's praying to God, and he speaks to him about his, from, to look at them from his holy habitation, from heaven. And it speaks to the transcendence of who God is, that he is transcendent above all of his creation. He is, his throne is in heaven, and yet he's personal because he sees him in his village in his community, his prayer is heard, even though it's not being made in the temple. So it's a beautiful picture that they did understand that while even though the presence of God was at the tabernacle or at the temple, God is everywhere and he hears their prayers, even in their villages. So let's continue on in verse 16. And, and we have a, a little bit of a transition here. He's, he's finished talking about that. And we're going to transition to thinking about recovenanting, recommitting um, the covenant ceremony. So he begins this way. This day, the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all of your soul. How many times have we heard this phrase itself throughout our study of Deuteronomy? It's been a lot. Over and over and over again, we are being reminded that they are to do these statutes. They are to be careful to do them, to do them with all of your heart, with all of your soul. And again, that phrase, this day, today, Today, I'm reminding you. Today, the Lord is commanding you. Every day, it's a new day, and it's the same thing every single day. The Lord commands them. Verse 17, you have declared today that the Lord is your God, and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules, and you will obey his voice. So today, the people are declaring before the Lord, you are my God. And I will walk in your ways. So they're recommitting themselves. They're recovenanting themselves. Re-verbalizing this truth that God is their God. And they will walk in his ways. And then the Lord in verse 18 also responds. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession. As he has promised you. And that you are to keep all of his commandments. And that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor. High above all nations that he has made. And that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he has promised. So once again the Lord is declaring that they are his holy people. His treasured possession. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. You are holy the Lord is saying. And then he switches it and says, and you shall be a people holy. 
So that the fact that they are holy, they are holy because God had redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to himself. So they already are holy, but they shall be holy. They shall walk into the holiness that he has already called them to be as they walk in obedience to his word. So he repeats this, this declaration. It's like a recommittal ceremony. It almost sounds like a marriage ceremony. Each of them has their part to say, and it, they're declaring it again today. And it's, it's interesting how many times the Lord reminds them and brings this up and says, today, today you are Today you shall obey my commandments. And we see that even in the text this week. It was repeated several times. And we need to be reminded because we are forgetful people. Because they continued to break the covenant. So these recommitments and renewals in many ways is a repentance. A continual repentance of returning back to the God of covenant and committing oneself to him. So he calls them to a recommitment, and we're actually going to be looking at that next week. There's a kind of a renewal of the covenant in Moab under Moses' leadership that's happening, and I think he's setting the stage for that even now as he talks about this future time when they get into the land under Joshua's leadership, they're going to have a fabulous renewal ceremony there. But they're also doing it in Moab under Moses' leadership. And we're going to look more on that next week. But he transitions now um, for the instructions for this future ceremony that they're going to have in the land. And Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 1, opens up and says this. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. Now, once again, Moses and the elders of Israel, that's a different kind of phrase than we've seen before. It's usually just Moses commanded the people, but not Moses and the elders. And what Moses is doing here is he's preparing the people for this transition that is to come. He's preparing them for the elders and Joshua who are going to be leading them into the promised land, who are going to be be giving them the word once they get in there. And so grouping these two together is preparation for this transition of leadership that is coming, but also preparation in the hearts of the elders of the people of Israel as they prepare to lead the people across the Jordan as well. Verse 2, it says, And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. Interesting little fact, this was an Egyptian technique for writing, kind of a normal thing that they did. They would write on stones that had been covered over with plaster, and the plaster, which is white, made the writing more visible and easy to read. So it's just a common, ordinary way of writing in that cultural context. Verse 3, and you shall write on them all the words of this law, all of the, all of, it could be all of um, Genesis through Deuteronomy, when you cross over to the, enter to the, Enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I have commanded you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster. So this first structure that they were to build was, on, was to be built on Mount Ebal. And it was a structure of stones that would be written on it, the words of the law of God that was given to Moses. And this structure was going to serve as a witness 
to the covenant renewal ceremony that they were going to have. It was standing there with the law written on it as a witness to what the people were covenanting to do. Continuing on in verse 5, And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them, and you shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. And you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and you shall eat there, and you shall rejoice again with the rejoicing. Do you get the feeling that God is a God of joy and rejoicing? You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and you shall write on the the stones all the words of this law very plainly. So they built this monument with the words of the law on it, and then they were also to build an altar. Um, And on this altar, they were to make the burnt offerings. And you remember what we learned a few weeks ago about the burnt offerings. The animal that was sacrificed on this altar was completely consumed. It was the offering that was made in acknowledgement of the sinfulness of humanity. It was so the people, the nation of Israel, together, when they entered into the land at this covenant ceremony, they were to, first of all, offer sacrifices for their sins. Now, don't miss the grace that is embedded within these instructions. Over and over and over again, we are hearing to obey the law, to keep the law, to obey the law, to keep the law, and yet, in the middle of all of this, we have the acknowledgement that they won't, and the opportunity to to reestablish and restore relationship with God through these sacrifices. After the burnt offering, they were to offer then the peace offering, which this offering as separate offering was followed the, the burnt offering for sin, and it was not consumed, so they would do part of an animal, but the rest of the animal they were able to eat and feast and fellowship before the Lord, rejoicing before the Lord because of the forgiveness of sins that they received, because of the, the reconciliation of the relationship with God. And so that is why it's a peace offering, a, a fellowship offering, a rejoicing before the Lord. And each of these ceremonies are all pointing to God's ultimate plan for his people through his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was for us our burnt offering, who is for us our peace offering. And it is through him that we have fellowship with God and we feast and we rejoice at his table. Before we continue on, I want to take just a moment to think through and to set the scene for this covenant renewal ceremony in the promised land, because it is very, very significant. The location of this ceremony was to be um, at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Now, the, these two mountains were located west of the Jordan River. They were approximately 40 miles north of Jerusalem. There was an important east-west trade route that passed between these two mountains, so it was kind of a pass-through area. Um, Nestled between the mountains was a city called Shechem. Now, it was in this valley of Shechem, a very important event happened many, many years before. Genesis 12, 6 through 7 tells us this. And Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. And so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him, right on the very spot that Abram stood. And the Lord appeared to him, 
and promised that his offspring would receive this land, God had called those offspring to come and covenant with him. Isn't that beautiful? So specific. Can you imagine what it would have been like for the people of Israel who were there that day? Can you imagine knowing their history, knowing that it was on this very ground that their ancestor, Abram, had met with the Lord and worshiped the Lord and received the promise and that God had promised that his offspring would inherit this land and now here they were, the very offspring God had spoken about on the very spot that Abraham stood receiving the promise that God had made. As they looked around at the mountains and at the city and at the roadway and as they looked around each other, All that they would be able to see was testimony to God's faithfulness to his word. God is a God who keeps his promise. He watches over his word in order to perform it. And they were living proof of this. They were evidence of God's faithfulness as they stood in that place. Let's continue on. Verse 9. Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all of Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. Again, this repeated phrase, this repeated thought. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore, in light of who you are, obey, walk in his commandments. Notice that he does not say, obey the voice of the Lord God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, and you will become the people of God. He does not say that, right? The order is very important. He says, you are the people of God. Therefore, in light of that, you walk in obedience to him. Verse 11, that day Moses charged the people saying, when you have crossed over the Jordan, there shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And there shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So let's pause for a moment to picture this scene. Two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Six of the tribes are to stand on Mount Ebal, six of the tribes on Mount Gerizim. One mountain is representative of the blessings of God, one mountain is representative of the cursings of God. In Joshua 8, when we are given the account of the fulfillment of these instructions, we learn that Joshua did all that the Lord commanded him to do. We learn that at the center between those two mountains stood the tribes Uh, the tribe of Levi, the priests. They stood at the center and the Ark of the Covenant, which housed the tablets of the law given at Sinai, was also in the center. And Joshua read to all of the people, all of the law at the ceremony. The Levites that were standing in the center between these two mountains and surrounded by all the tribes of Israel were to declare, to call out to all of Israel both blessings and cursings. And the Israelites would respond with amen, so be it, we agree. Now, we don't have recorded for us the 12 blessings. We just have the curses. But I would assume that the blessings and the curses are in contrast to one another. So this setting, the picture that we see, speaks a significant message that I want to bring out. 
with the, the law placed at the center and the priests, the tribe of the Levites, between the two, we are intended to, to be reminded of the sober responsibility that is imposed by the covenantal law. And there is either obedience or disobedience. There is no in-between. There's no riding the fence, sitting on the fence. You either obey or you disobey. And obedience leads to blessing and disobedience leads to cursing. There's no neutral ground at all. It's one or the other. It's black and white. And this is what we're reminded as we look at the scene. So imagine with me as I read through the curses, we're going to read through the 12 curses all in one lump sum. Imagine as I'm reading it, as the Levitical priests pronounce the curse and nearly a million people surrounding respond with amen. Okay, just, just picture that in your minds as I read, to get, read this. Verse 15, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image and the abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of the father or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Just a couple of quick observations about these curses. They are not a comprehensive list of all of the things that are under a curse. Um, they are a representative list, and if you would go through and look through this list, you will notice that pretty much everything in this list is something that is done in secret or something that is done hidden, away from other eyes, away from judgment, away from being caught. It's, it's referring to things that are done in, in secret. In this list, we have idolatry that's done in secret, injustice to the vulnerable. The vulnerable would not have the opportunity often to break, get justice for themselves. A variety of sexual immoralities, four different kinds, that are done in secret, murder that is done in secret, dishonoring of parents. We talked about how the parents were supposed to take their rebellious son and have him stoned, but we all knew at that point that what parent is going to be able to do that. They're not going to be able to do that. There was never anything recorded in history. So once again, we have this idea that um, dishonoring of parents can often be done in secret. 
And the point of what this is saying is that whether you get caught or not, whether you get brought to um, justice or not, sin is done before God. Sin is done before the eyes of God. And no matter whether it's been caught or not, sin is still remains under the curse. And even while these were not comprehensive lists, verse 26 kind of makes it a comprehensive list. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. So any part of the law, anything that God has said in his law, if it is broken, that, that person will find itself under the curse of the law. This is what Paul teaches in Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. All breaking of God's law is sin and all sin is under the curse of the law, both then and now. It hasn't changed. Sin is still sin. God has not changed. And I just want to make a a comment on the cultural context with which we live right now in light of cursing and blessing. Just recently, in the last couple of weeks, the Church of England has decided that they are going to bless what God has cursed. And truthfully, this is what our whole entire society is coercing the church to do, to bless what God has said is cursed. And frankly, we don't have that authority. We're not God. We have no authority to change or to try to change. And every, any church or any people who says that we can now bless what God has called sin and what God has cursed is lying. We don't bless. Only God can bless. And he has already declared in his word the truth that all sin is under the curse. It, I think, when I think about it, it comes from a very gross misunderstanding of who God is and about his character and about his nature and about the gospel, about what salvation is. God is the unchanging God, and he hasn't changed from the time of Moses and Deuteronomy to the time of today. And Jesus, when he came to redeem his people, he came to redeem us from sin, not to sin. He does not change the law in that what once was now sin, we're free to do and we can bless it. That's not what the gospel tells us. What's beautiful and far more beautiful about what Jesus came to do is he came to change us, our hearts and our desires so that we no longer desire to walk in the sin with which we once walked, with which we once enjoyed and loved. So a sure evidence that somebody has met Jesus and been transformed by him and received him is that their desires have changed and they no longer love the things that they once loved. And now they love what God loves. So it comes from a misunderstanding of God, of Jesus, and his gospel. Let's continue on. Chapter 28. So um, Moses shifts us back, our attention back. He was talking about this, this uh, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim and the curses and the blessings that were coming off the mountain. And he shifts back to uh, from the future event that he's been teaching them about to talking about 
the blessings and the cursings. Specifically, he's going to teach the people about obedience and disobedience. Obedience for bless will result in blessing and disobedience will result, result in the cursing. Verse, chapter 28, verse 1 says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessing shall you, blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. So verses 3 through 6 are the actual blessings and 7 through 14 expand on those blessings. He's kind of preaching on them, expanding on their understanding of what this would look like. Notice how the blessings are almost giving a pers personality, personified. Um, they come and they overtake the people. I think of it like a tsunami of God's goodness engulfing the people of Israel wholly and completely and every sphere of their lives. There is not a part of their life that is untouched by the blessing of God if they would walk in obedience to him. Whether they live in the city or in the field, their fertility and, and mankind or in the ground or in their livestock, the provision of household necessities in their basket and their kneading bowls and in all that they do all of their activities, whether they're going in or they're going out. No matter who they are, no matter where they are, no matter where they live and what they undertake to do, God is pouring out his generous, benevolent blessing on them for walking in obedience. Verse 7 says, The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you in seven ways. And then he goes on, Your barns are going to be blessed. All that you undertake, he continues on, will be blessed. Verse 9 says, the Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself. He wants them to know who they are. They are his. They are a holy people, treasured possession that belong to him. He will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways and all the people of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. So as they walk in his ways, the nations will see them. Does that not remind you of being a light in the darkness? Let your light shine before men, Jesus would have said. This is what the Deuteronomy is saying. As you walk in obedience to the commandments of the Lord, you will be testifying to the world about the glory of God and that his name is on you. And they would be fruitful in every way. And he just keeps repeating this, this pouring out of fruitfulness and blessing on them. Drop to, to verse 12. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall only... 
Go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods, to serve him. And as I think through all of these blessings, I am reminded once again, and I think there might be, um, this might be what Moses is trying to get out, reminding us of Eden. There's a reminder of Eden. How, remember how Eden was, how it was described to us in Genesis chapter 2, and how it just was a land that was rich with the blessings of God, and it was filled with every kind of fruit and trees and plants to eat, and there were rivers that were running through it, and there was gold and all sorts of resources, and it was just plentiful and rich, and God said, you are free to enjoy all of this. Eat from any tree except for the one, right? And we, we learn as we study in the book of Genesis that we begin to understand that God is not a stingy God, that he is a God whose very heart, very desires to pour out his blessings on his people. And we see that in Deuteronomy and we see God calling people back to Eden. You see God's blessings are truly found in his boundaries, in his laws. They lead to blessing and they are blessings. But in complete reverse are the curses. Complete direct reversal of what he's doing in blessing is the curses. And the curses we must understand is life outside of God's good boundaries. It's life outside of his boundaries. It's walking outside of the way he designed people to live. And outside of his boundaries is exile, wandering, desert, and death. The curse is the exact opposite, the complete reversal of the blessings. Look with me at verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God to be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you, just in the same way that a tsunami of the goodness and blessing of God would come over the people, so too for the disobedience would be a tsunami of curses. It would overtake them, and not a single area of their life would be untouched from that. Verse 16, cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. And then and likewise that 16 through 19 are the actual curses. Verses 20 through 68 expand on that. It expands on what these curses are going to look like and the impact that they're going to have on the nation of Israel. And it's striking to me that we have 14 verses of blessing and we have almost 60 of curses. And I feel like God is, is urging through his word and, and is, is in his grace is caught warning of the devastation that comes from disobedience the devastation that comes from disobedience. We're not gonna go through all of these individually. We do not have enough time. I'm counting on you having done your homework this week and reading through them, but I'm just gonna summarize um, the descent 
of these curses for us. Um, Verses 20 through 24, instead of life and vitality and abundance that rain down from the storehouses in heaven under the blessing of God, verses 20 through 24 promise death and sickness and drought. Instead of glorious victories over their enemies, verses 25 through 26 promise devastating defeat and ignoble death. Verses 27 through 35 speak of horrible diseases as a consequence of defeat during war. Now, I want you to just notice one thing in that section of scripture with me. Look with me down to verse 30. At verse 30. Verse 30 says, You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. And I want to highlight that to you because remember back in chapter 20 when we had the rules of warfare? And there were three exemptions that the men had for they did not, they did not have to go into war. One was if they were betrothed to a wife and had not married her. They were to stay home. Two was if they had a vineyard and they had not yet eaten of the produce, they could stay home. And three, if they had um, not built a house, and had, or if they had built a house and not yet lived in it, they could stay home. And in this reversal of that blessing is the reversal of those exemptions. Those exemptions were possible because the Lord, their God, was in their midst and fighting for them. But when we're under the curse, when they've walked in disobedience, those exemptions are no longer possible. Because the Lord is not fighting for them. Moses continues in the darkness of the curses increases. As um, verses 36 through 44 promise exile, poor harvest, decline in their status. All of their labors are futile. Everything they set their hand to do is done in futility. All of the areas of their life will be affected by their curse. And once again, I'm reminded of exile from Eden. And when God came to Adam and Eve in the garden and and began to curse them, he basically said, all of your work, all your labor is now futile. Continuing on, um, look with me down to verse 45. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking in everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. All of these curses shall come upon you. There's a change in his verb usage there. Shall come upon you is communicating the inevitability of these curses. It is inevitable that they are going to come on, on the people of Israel. And this message of Moses goes from teaching what would happen for their disobedience to a prophetic word about what is coming for them. Notice that it says that these curses will be a sign and a wonder against you. Previously, we had seen signs and wonders done on their behalf. 
But now this is a sign and wonder against you because they did not serve the Lord. Notice with joyfulness and with gladness in their heart because of the abundance of all things. They have a God who is gracious and good and giving to them. And yet what they had chosen was to go after other gods. Instead of rejoicing and instead of joy in the gladness of their heart because of the abundance of all things that God had given to them, God is therefore saying, I'm going to give you what you desire, right? They're exchanging the covenant of God's grace for a yoke of iron. I cannot help but think of the words of Jesus when he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus was the same in Deuteronomy And the yoke that God had placed on Israel to be his people, to serve him, was a light yoke. And they exchanged the yoke that God had given them for a yoke of iron. They exchanged the blessing of fullness and in in return getting hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking in everything. The text continues on prophetically that the Lord would raise up a foreign nation that would come in and besiege Israel. And we saw that in um, verse 49. And this was fulfilled. We learn in 2 Kings 6, 24. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it. So what Moses has, um, pro- has said prophetically has come true in Israel's history. And verses 52 through 57 explain what's going to happen during that siege. And what happened in the siege in Samaria um, in Israel is exactly what we were told would happen in Deuteronomy. Israel descended into the depths of human depravity and began to practice cannibalism. They began to eat their children. Listen to this passage from 2 Kings 6. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, This woman said to me, me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And the woman went and hid her son so that they didn't have to eat them. The prophet Jeremiah laments in Lamentations during about this time in Israel. In Lamentations 4.10, it says this, The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. It is hard for us to even read these words and imagine the desperation that would cause a woman, a normal, compassionate woman, to boil her own child and eat them. And we can all sit in this room and say, I would never do that. But we have no idea what we would do given the right set of circumstances and the right amount of desperation. Because this sin of depravity resides in every human being. This shows us what we are all capable of doing, whether we can see that or not. And this is where sin leads. Not today, not tomorrow, but someday. The wages of sin is always death always. 
Moses concludes this portion of the sermon with one final summary of the curses in verses 58 through 68. Look with me at these verses. And what we're looking at in these verses is a complete reversal of the blessings that Israel had already received. It's a complete reversal of the blessings that they had already been given. Look at verse 58. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they will cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. So in Egypt, Israel had been protected from many of the diseases God had placed on the Egyptians. And now he specifically reverses that blessing and says, I will put the afflictions on you instead of them. So this is a reversal of that first one. Look at verse 62. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of the heaven. We have been hearing about that over and over again. God had promised to Abraham that I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars in heaven. Here they were. Numerous as the stars in heaven. You shall be left few in number. A complete reversal of this blessing. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Verse 63, and as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight. I think this is a play on words to help us to understand the severity of what these curses are. Um, will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you, and you shall be plucked off the land that you are inherit that you are entering to take possession of. So this land, this blessing that has been a gift from God to them is going to be taken from them, a reversal of that blessing. Verse 64, and the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there, there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. The fullness of the covenant blessing was found in the worship of Yahweh, in the worship of God together as the people of God. And the reversal will have them scattered and worshiping idols. Instead of the living God who sees, who hears, and who acts on behalf of his people, they will now be serving dead gods made of wood and stone. Their fathers had never known them. These gods cannot see, they do not hear, they do not act on their behalf. And the contrast could not be more stark. The fullness of worshiping and serving the living God who is the God whose very heart is the heart to bless and to see his people flourish to the emptiness of worshiping gods who are made of wood and stone who cannot see, cannot hear, do not act. So instead of the blessing of God and having other nations afraid of them, Israel, Moses continues on in those verses, will now live in fear. Instead of the blessing of the covenant of long life and flourishing, they now live with uncertainty of their own lives. And instead of the blessing of God that had radically and dramatically brought them out of Egypt, they would return to Egypt in humiliation, not even able to sell themselves as slaves. Do you hear what he's doing? He's taking the whole Exodus story and saying it's going back in reverse. He's reversing the whole thing. This is what the curse is, is the undoing, the undoing and reversal of the blessing of God. 
And it's dark, is it not? And it's hard to look at it, and it's hard to read it, and it's hard to think about it, and to process it, and to realize the truth that is proclaimed on the pages of the Word of God, that all sin leads to cursing and to death. So what do we do with this? How do we think about this? 1 Corinthians 10, 11 tells us, now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for us, for our instruction, on whom the end of the age has come. That verse is telling us that the blessings and the curses recorded here in Deuteronomy, as well as Israel's subsequent obedience and disobedience, they experience both the blessing for a period of time under King David and King Solomon, and then they, after Solomon's reign, they experience the cursing and exile and the reversal of all the blessings. These stories, these prophecies are pointing to something greater, to a greater truth. Remember how we talked about the blueprint? These are the blueprints. There's something greater that this is referring to, and that's the greater blessing and the greater cursing that is to come. The darkness of the curse of disobedience to the God's law can be overwhelming, and yet it pales, it pales in comparison to the darkness of the curse that it's pointing to, eternal separation from God in darkness and in hell. Dwelling in this darkness for a period of time is hard, it's sobering, and yet it's good, for it can help us. For those of us who have ears to hear, It helps us understand and embrace the significance of what God has done in Jesus. It is against the backdrop of the blackness of the curse for disobedience that the light of Jesus shines most brightly. And that's why it's good for us to look at the darkness for a while. Because in Jesus, we have a reversal of the curse into blessing. We have a complete reversal of the curse into a blessing. Because out of Egypt I have called my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God said. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to us, so that we may receive the promised spirit through faith. The curse of the law absorbed by Christ is so much more significant to us as we have looked into the face of what this curse actually consists of what this curse in reality is. It is the just and eternal judgment for sin. And that Jesus Christ, the only one who actually fulfilled the law perfectly, the only one who obeyed it without error, the only one who should have by by rights received that full blessing that we read about, the full blessing that should have overcome him and overtaken him, the tsunami of God's goodness and blessing that should have come on him for obedience, instead willingly placed himself in front of us in the overwhelming flood of the curse. And as we look at Jesus on that cross, we are seeing the curse come over him and overtake him. 
so that those who are in Christ by faith, those who have received the gift of Jesus by faith, may receive the blessing of Abraham, the promised spirit. We say this all the time. We always talk about how Jesus was condemned and took my place, as if it was just kind of this matter-of-fact kind of thing. But this is huge. This is amazing. This is wondrous. What wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? Why? So that we who are in Christ may experience the tsunami of the blessings of God in our lives. These blessings are not things. Do not hear me say that the blessings are wealth and prosperity and fortune. Those are temporal things that are going to fade away. Those are things that moth and rust corrupt. What the blessings of God, the tsunami of blessings of God for us is far greater and and eternal. These blessings are found in the fellowship that we now have with the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. When we belong to Jesus, we no longer need to fear the tsunami of the curse that is to come. We now get to taste, now and for all eternity, the tsunami of blessings. Listen in closing to the blessings Christ Jesus has bought for you with his blood. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, he has opened up the storehouses of heaven and is pouring them out on his people. Does that sound familiar? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Do you hear echoes of Deuteronomy? In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed eternally with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your son, Jesus, who took on 
the curse for us so that we might be lavished in your blessing. I pray that as we go out here, um, out of here tonight, that we would walk in this truth, that we would believe this, and that we would, it would be a reality in our life, that we would be um, wondrously amazed at all that you have done to redeem us, to save us, and all that you have given to us through your son Jesus. I pray that we would live in this and walk in this and be changed by this. And I ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.